Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I found myself in a meeting the other day just being like, let's hope that the people sitting at the desk in North Korea are like good, clear, rational thinkers about this whole thing. Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Ezra Klein. This is my show. Uh, thank you for being here. <laughs> I have been struggling recently with a couple of questions about American politics that I feel very unsettled on, unresolved about. And one of the big ones is when we have a president who is understood to be unfit for office, who is understood to be creating risk that the people around him in the White House don't want to see created, that that even his congressional allies in the Senate and in the House don't want to see created. What do you do about that? Is it okay because the guy got elected that you just say, well, we have four years of the country being pushed needlessly to the brink of, among other things, genuine nuclear war? How do you deal with the fact that we might have made a mistake? And how do you deal with the fact that the norms of politics are leaving that mistake unremedied? In fact, create a sense that there is no remedy for the mistake. You just absorb this risk until... Hopefully, it goes away after the next election. Uh, when when I have to think through hard things in politics, I like to talk with my friend Chris Hayes. He is the host of All In on MSNBC. Uh, he is a brilliant guy. I've known him for a long time and really, really always enjoyed talking to him. He's been on the show before. That was a great conversation. And this one is too. Uh, we talk about should Donald Trump be removed and, and, and what would that mean and what would that do to American norms of governance? We talk about what it, means that the president is being ignored and contained even by the institutions around him, uh, by the White House, by the Senate. We talk about the left and how it is responding to the Trump era and what its fissures are and what its divisions are. And we talk about one of the bright spots right now, which is Republicans in Congress beginning to find their footing amidst Trump, beginning to show that there are limits to what they will absorb and that they actually realize that Trump has to be constrained in some forward-looking ways and beginning to constrain him in those ways. So it is not a hopeless conversation. It is not a conversation that will just make you feel worse, but it is a, a very interesting, very fun one. So I hope you enjoy it. A couple quick plugs. You should be checking out Worldly, our foreign policy podcast. It is very important right now. Their recent episode on North Korea is genuinely one of the most helpful things I have heard on that issue, heard or read or absorbed in any way. I am not exactly going to say it made me feel better, but it definitely didn't make me feel worse, uh, and it did make me feel more informed. So if you're not checking out Worldly, which you can download wherever you get your fine podcasts right now, you really should be. That is Worldly. Um, with that said, please keep sending me your feedback and your guest requests at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, that is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And here is Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes, welcome back to the program. 
Good to be back. So I, I wanted to talk again because I feel like things have gotten a lot weirder since we last spoke. <laughs> <laughs> and I am in a bit of a uh, an effort right now to try to figure out which context to put them in. And and I wanted to see which context you 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 would put them in. So we're talking. Uh, this will be released in like not tomorrow. Uh, so for all I know, we'll be at war with North Korea by the time it is. But we're talking at a moment of heavy tensions with North Korea. Donald Trump seems to be in a feud increasingly with Mitch McConnell. There's a lot of talk now that the people around Trump, John Kelly, Jim Mattis, see themselves as trying to protect the world from Trump, at least in part. Uh, there's been reports that. There's a group of folks around Trump who have ensured that there will always be one of them in the country at a time to make sure he doesn't do something stupid when they all have their backs turned. This feels very weird. I'm going to put it there. Does does it feel weird to you? Yeah. No, yes. It feels extremely weird. I feel like there is – I mean the word – you know, the word that people have used and I think it's a pretty appropriate one is unfit. The idea that he's unfit, that – Maybe he's fit for other jobs. He was fit to be a, a very successful reality star. He's fit for a certain kind of real estate deal making, but that he's fundamentally unfit for this job, both in experience and disposition, I think seems... I want to say inarguable, but of course it's not inarguable because there are other people who would argue it's not true. But... But evident and manifest, and I say this based on the statements that come from the people closest to him. You know, Dan Dresner has this Twitter thread he's always doing where I'll believe that the president's going to the office when his staff stops talking about him like a child, and they continue to. Um, He is treated with the same kind of tactics that one treats a child. This to me is important. I just want to hold on it for a second because I think this is why this feels like such an institutionally strange moment. I I don't think it is unusual in American politics to have a president who a substantial portion of the country really disagrees with or even thinks is dangerous, right? Dangerous in a more directed, competent way maybe, but but dangerous, right? A lot of liberals thought that about George W. Bush. I think he actually did turn out to be quite dangerous. Um, Certainly there were conservatives who felt that way about, about Barack Obama. What I have not seen before, and trying to read up on this and read up on other weird moments in American history I have not found, is that we seem to be in a point where the institutions around Trump and around the large-scale mechanisms of American policymaking and foreign policymaking have all decided and have all recognized and are now all strategizing around the idea that the president is unfit. So his White House believes he's unfit and, you know, there are maybe places where they think he's got good instincts or is a good guy, but they are also very clear-headed that the world needs to be protected from him from some degree. Anthony Scaramucci, in his very short tenure, said there are people in the executive branch who think their job is to protect the country from the president, yep. which that's true and they are heroes. Um, but Republicans in Congress believe this too. Uh, if you talk to them privately, increasingly some, like Jeff Flake, are saying it publicly. They believe that the president needs to be uh, watched and checked. They don't trust him. They might want to get their agenda done through him, but but they know this is not good. Foreign uh, leaders, our allies across the world, have recognized that they cannot trust what the president says. They can't react to what he tweets. They can't take what he says as clear signals of American policymaking, and they need to endure his impulsivity 
and try to work around him, talk to the secretary of state, try to make sure that they don't overreact to the president who doesn't know about their issues all of a sudden appearing to blow up decades of American policymaking before he forgets about it and moves on to the next thing. And, and, and that feels weird. I don't know how to predict the outcome of every policymaking organ trying to marginalize a person who is supposed to be, um, or at least traditionally has led the executive branch, led the policymaking agenda, led the communication of American foreign policy. That feels really both different and very fragile. I completely agree. It feels different and fragile and hard to theorize a little bit. I basically agree with you. I think I think there's a sort of turning point that that we've started to reach. I thought the military's response to his tweets on transgender service members was a, was a fascinating turning point. The institution of the Pentagon, which is an incredibly fascinating, complicated, sprawling, powerful bureaucracy, the most powerful bureaucracy in the world, arguably. You know, they did the thing that everyone has done with their bosses, where your boss tells you something you don't want to hear, and you just like nod and say yes, and then ignore it, which is, turns out to be a very good tactic. I, I advise it to, to people with bosses everywhere. Um, see if they come back and they say the same thing again. But they've done that to the President of the United States. And this is a place that is obsessed with chain of command, obsessed with command and control, obsessed with, you know, following orders, which is not to say the Pentagon doesn't have a history of pushing back against, you know, civilian orders at all. It very much does. But that to me was such a fascinating moment and symbolized is sort of is a perfect little microcosm of the broader issue, which is they don't really think he can possibly mean what he says. And here's the craziest part of it to, to take this one step forward. I think you're right that institutionally the people around the president think that. I kind of think the president's totally comfortable with that as well. In this very weird way, I don't think the president wants to be in charge. I think he wants to sit on his couch and yell at his TV screen and tweet things, but is almost happy to be able to kind of get it out of his system and not have anyone listen to him. Like, <laughs> I think I think his optimal equilibrium is hectoring Jeff Sessions, but Jeff Sessions not quitting, tweeting out the thing about transgender service members and the military ignoring him, tweeting out threats to North Korea and not actually changing American posture. I think that that we have arrived at this, this new equilibrium in which both the interior members of his staff, the people closest to him, the actual federal bureaucracy and arms of the government, people in Congress, the U.S. public, global publics and global leaders all basically understand the president is fundamentally a bullshit artist and you just shouldn't listen to what he says. Well, I, I think that's clearly true, actually. I mean, it, it's a weird thing to say, and you're right. It sounds like you're taking a step further. But if the president didn't feel that way, he would fire people, right? It is that's clear exactly right. constantly yeah, around like him. People are not listening to his tweets, are going in other directions, are not immediately backing up what he says about North Korea with a similarly, a similarly belligerent posture down through the State Department, down through the Pentagon. The military thing, he did not fire Jim Mattis after the military seemed to talk down his transgender tweet stuff. He seems to be okay with it. And, and it's, <laughs> it speaks to a broader thing that's happening with him that I have always thought is really interesting he feels very alienated from his own government. Uh, you see it really around Jeff Sessions and the Justice Department. He will often talk about the Justice Department or our beleaguered attorney general. He talks about it the same way you would talk about it if you were a, a 
like a pundit or a commenter, right? Like, what are they doing? The fucking Justice Department is doing a terrible job. Why did they go to court and defend my travel ban this way instead of this other way? And they're his, but he doesn't take responsibility for them, doesn't want to take responsibility for them, doesn't feel responsibility for them, and doesn't act like they are his to control. And so when they do something he doesn't like, he criticizes it and is upset, but he doesn't seem to want to own it. That's exactly right. He is a pundit about, he is a commentator on his own presidency, is, is, the, way it, is the way it feels. There are people within the presidency who very much view it as a tool to implement a certain vision of a worldview they have. That's, I think, very true of, of Bannon in, in particular and Miller, and you see it. I mean, it's not like nothing's happening. Like the way that immigration enforcement in this country, as the great Daryl Lind has documented as well as anyone, uh, the way that immigration enforcement in this country is, is undertaken has changed dramatically with dramatic human effects, with dramatic legal effects, with dramatic effects for people's lives. Like that's all real tangible stuff, but that's because that's close to the heart of people who really do have a vision they want to see implemented. Generally, the president is essentially a commentator on his own presidency. And it's there's this vacuum. And I think I think that's also that's also what accounts for the craziness of the infighting, the constant infighting and the publicness of it. There's nothing, there's no direction or vision at the top, and not even much assertiveness. I mean, that's the weirdest thing about the whole thing. Here's Mr. Tough Guy, Alpha Male, boastful, braggadocious president who is in so many ways feckless, in so many ways a commentator on his own presidency, in so many ways willing to let others essentially take the initiative and drive the agenda, is is remarkably unassertive in a variety of ways. And then the final part of this is, okay, then you end up at the kind of the paradox of the president's competence, which is at one level, if you are substantively opposed to parts of this worldview and agenda, you are extremely happy that he is not more competent and not more assertive, that he was unable to sell ACA repeal, et cetera. At the same time, as you watch him tweet threats at North Korea, <laughs> you are, you know, there's a certain level of competence that you wish that he did have as he undertakes extremely high stakes matters like this. So this is something interesting about what he is revealing about our political system, I think. There has always been this discussion that it would be great if we ran government more like a business. And so then what we did was we took a TV businessman and put him in charge. I mean, if you talk to Trump voters during the election, they often said, yeah, you know, the guy, he's a big talker. But look, this is a businessman. He's going to run government like a business. I mean, it's what he promised to do, hires the best people, blah, 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 blah. And it has been really striking to me that Trump has been the moment we revealed that we don't run this at all like a business. There is no board of directors in the world that would allow a CEO who has so fully lost the confidence of his um, employees, of the board of directors, of yes. the competitive market, and if you look at polling, uh, of the customers, right, of the constituents of the country, to continue. And we're in this place, and it's something I want to talk to you about because it's something I am struggling with how to develop my own opinion on. We are in this place where I think if you just got all of the relevant actors to reveal their true opinions, most people think who are involved in politics, involved actually in the White House, just think this guy should leave. He should be removed. This is bad. We have made a mistake. And mistakes, by the way, 
happen. I hire a lot of people. And, you know, sometimes you you think somebody's going to be great and you hire them and it doesn't work out. And that's a shame. But it doesn't work out. Uh, it can often work out poorly in a lot less than four years. And so I think there's this question <laughs> hanging over everything of putting aside the question of whether some kind of 25th Amendment style removal is plausible. Is it a good idea even if you could do it. I mean, to it is this tremendous norm-breaking in American life. It raises the possibility in a very polarized era that you'd begin to see that done just when people have disagreement. And on the other hand, it really seems to me insane that the country is going to run this kind of risk for at least four years just because a mistake was made. Even though every, again, like Republicans in Congress, like, Everybody, if you could just like inject them with true serum, they want the 25th Amendment done and Mike Pence to be president. Like that is what they want. That is what the people around Donald Trump want. Nobody thinks this is a good situation or a good equilibrium. And yet we just seem to be stuck in it because we don't run the government like a business because nobody is really the person who's supposed to be in charge isn't really in charge. And the board of directors, a country does not weigh in except for every four years. And so you make a mistake and there's no real way to fix it um, short of invoking these truly extraordinary uh, mechanisms. I think that's a great way of phrasing it. I mean, one one thing on the on the run like a business point, I have a, a, a segment producer who did business reporting before coming to us. She was at Reuters, and, you know, and she made the point about the difference between like a public business and a private one, right? So like there's a lot you can get away with when you run a private basically family business like the Trump organization is that you would never get away with if you had if you were a public company that had shareholders and SEC filings, et cetera. Um, and so that, I mean, you know, this is someone who's never been subject to any kind of scrutiny or accountability, uh, you know, from anyone. I mean, he's run a family business uh, and never had to deal with like shareholders. So in in terms of like a board of directors firing him, he's like, he's never had a board of directors. <laughs> he's, you know, even though he's a businessman and even though he's quote unquote a billionaire, it's, it's you know, this is not someone who's like running Google. Um, so, and, and in the, to extend the analogy, I mean, part of what's in a constitutional sense, the 25th amendment essentially creates a mechanism for something that is like board removal of a chief executive. The board is constituted by the vice president and the cabinet members. Um, and then there's a sign off from Congress. And my basic instinct is this. The country feels like in this sort of unwinding disintegration race to the bottom of a bunch of institutional norms that kind of keep liberal democracy happening. And that step feels really dangerous to me. It seems to me a better course is if there are essentially high crimes and misdemeanors for some kind of impeachment proceeding, which A, there's precedent for, B, um, B, I think there's probably, I mean, we'll see. I, I don't want to determine the outcome, but it seems to me there's actually fairly good prima facie evidence of obstruction of justice <laughs> um, already. And in terms of a remedy, there's that. And then the other thing I think, I guess is, I mean, I, I sort of feel like in a weird way, asserting normalcy against the abnormality is also something that I have a strong pull towards, which is if you meet the abnormality of this president with e extraordinary responses, which there's an argument for, I don't want to discount that, but it also seems like you're playing 
a part in this race to the bottom whereby we start to just undo everything. The 25th Amendment becomes a, a, a constant threat. And and we, <laughs> oh, the, the whole idea of democratic legitimacy begins to erode and erode or erode further in fundamental ways. So I agree with that, and I think I agree with that. Uh, but I'm going to take the other side of this argument for a couple of minutes because there's something here that is unsettling to me. And and so let me try to go through it. So so to go back to your point about obstruction of justice, this is a way in which I don't really like the hopes and weight that have been invested in the Mueller investigation. I think it's clear Donald Trump obstructed justice, and whether he should be removed from office for it, I don't know. I It's not obvious to me that if everything else were going fine, but he had overreacted in this case, that you know, in another context, everybody would be banging for his head. And so it sort of feels like a lot of folks who believe he should not be president have pinned their hopes on this. And I think even quietly, some Republicans have looked at this and said, well, maybe this will be the the way to get them out. And maybe that's what you need, right? Maybe you need a pretext. Uh, and again, I, I am very skeptical this would lead to impeachment in any case, but but let's imagine it did. What I think we're seeing here, though, is a real inability of the system to have remedy if it just makes a terrible mistake. And I do think Donald Trump is a terrible mistake. Now, one thing to say is, look, the Founding Fathers built a system with checks and balances. And so Congress can check the president, the Supreme Court can check the president, the way the executive branch has emerged, it can check the president. And more or less, that is true. But it's not true in terms of they can stop the president from sending a signal that North Korea overreacts to, or even really, they can stop the president from launching nuclear weapons in North Korea. There are ways in which they could try to slow walk that order and so on, but but the president does have considerable power as commander in chief. And so on the one hand, I I really do agree with what you're saying about wanting to assert normalcy. And on the other hand, the tail risk of this is so profound. And it feels to me that we have on earth this just tremendous flaw in the system of government that, you know, other systems, you could have a vote of no confidence in the prime minister. And I guess in this one, you can have impeachment, but the way we have framed impeachment in American life is not it's something Congress does because the president is failing. 25th Amendment is a little bit more like that. Uh, right. But that it is you know something you only do if he's broken the law in some profound way. And so everything you are saying about what a step like that would mean is true. And for that reason, I am probably where you are on not taking it. And on the other hand, I think sometimes about what will happen if the worst does happen in this presidency. And people look back and they say, you all knew. Right. Like you were watching this happen. <laughs> yes. You yes. were reading his tweets. You were seeing him go around. I mean, the, you talked about the transgender tweets, but in some ways, one of the scariest parts of that was that it came out later that in the nine minutes before him tweeting, I have a big announcement to make about the military or whatever the tweet was and saying it's about transgender rules. The military didn't know if he had launched weapons in North Korea or was announcing that we would yes. launch weapons in North Korea. Yes, there's reporting that they're like running around, literally running. He, he ends with an ellipsis and the Pentagon is in, you know, panic about what the hell the president's going to announce. And so there's one version of this, right, where Donald Trump's presidency is weird, but it has fundamentally normal outcomes at the end. And then everybody looks back and says, Good. It's a good thing nobody 
freaked out and, you know, invoked the 25th Amendment and broke norms in American politics. Then there's this other version where the Donald Trump presidency ends in catastrophe and, you know, hundreds of thousands dead. And and all the signs were there and we knew it and we were watching it. And there were generals around him who wouldn't leave the country because they were worried about what he'd do. And people look back and say, what the fuck was wrong with you people? Like, why did you let this happen? Why did all of you knew? And I don't know, yeah. like we live in an era when tail risk has been very real. Donald Trump is an example of it. And so there is this also feeling of irresponsibility. I mean, again, going back to how you'd run a business, if I had an editor, forget the CEO, an editor who was as catastrophically incompetent as Donald Trump was, and I didn't remove that person, and then we got just huge things wrong and like created a disaster for Vox. I would correctly be fired and I'd be furious at myself. Right. Just something here is weird. Like, and I, I mean, right. I mean, let me, let me also say like, yes, I agree. I mean, the the other, the other thing is, I I think you and I agree that like we we shouldn't run the country like a business. And part of the other problem here, I was going to say is like, you know, we don't, we don't hire and fire because we're not a business or a democracy, but then you add on to the, the fact that, even from a democratic perspective, there's a legitimacy problem because the guy, guy got three million less votes. So it's not right. even like, well, well we ch- we chose this person and right. now we have to live with it because fundamentally it's, you know, this is the biggest gap between the the, the popular vote and the electoral college since 1876. It's, it's, it's a, it was in some statistical senses fluky in a deeper normative sense, anti-democratic, the person with less votes chosen by fewer people became the president. So you're already building all of this. Not only is it that, that there's this individual who's an outlier in both his disposition, his resume, his biography, his experience, his behavior, but he's also an outlier from the perspective of democratic legitimacy. That's just to start everything with <laughs> before you even get to his behavior in office. And I totally agree. And I mean, by the I way, in an the- election that a big part of it was Russia was influencing the election using a sort of weaponized digital propaganda based off of a digital espionage campaign. And, you know, Comey, you know, upended it at the last minute for an investigation that turned out to be nothing. I mean, it is weird, right? Yeah. Not saying any of that negates the results, but but we're we're not building on, we're not building on a tremendous popular mandate. Right. That's right. So, so there's that, that to begin with. So that sort of factors into it too. I mean, I, I guess I'm now sort of arguing, I've jumped over to sort of argue a bit on your side or, or to say, you know, in, in terms of some extraordinary m- movement, you know, the idea that you have to sort of remove this person before he does something dangerous. I mean, I do think there's, there's two other thoughts, well, three other thoughts. One is I agree about the danger of viewing the Mueller investigation as some white knight deus ex machina that will save the country. And I, when I was on book tour, I would just be saying this, this was always my, my sort of hectoring, <laughs> finger-wagging lecture to people is like, you should, like, that will happen and you should work hard as a citizen to, you know, channel your values as a citizen into your Democratic representatives to push for politics you want to see. Like, basically, conduct yourself through normal politics, um, I think is a really important thing for everyone to kind of keep in mind during this period. Um Second of all, so so I feel that I, I agree sort of about the danger of the sort of the seduction of the Mueller uh, investigation as, as a deus ex machina. Um, second of all, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the terrorists, too, because I just have I've been happening to listen to the fantastic Dan Carlin hardcore history on the birth of the nuclear age called Destroyer Worlds. And I started going back and reading some of Eric Schlosser's command and control and what this is highlighting, particularly this moment with North Korea 
is something that was immediately recognized by lots of people in the government in 1945-1946,which was that the dawn of the nuclear age fundamentally transformed American constitutional governance, and there's a good argument destroyed entirely the order the founders had created. It placed in the hands of a single individual the power to exterminate human life on the planet, essentially, what it's what Elaine Scarry
And so, you know, you you just hope that they're now applying that logic to our own leader. Okay, but this is where I get very nervous. I agree with what you're saying, but we don't actually know that's equilibrium. So one, the fact that we are now saying that, oh, we sure hope North Korea, which we consider to be a quasi-rational regime at best, understands us well enough to not overreact in some dangerous way. It's like of yes, all the I countries in the world- I found myself in a meeting the other day just being like, let's like, let's hope that the people sitting at the desk in North Korea are like good, clear, rational and, thinkers And this about is something, this whole thing. there's an important piece of this, which um, Yohi Driesen and, and Zach and Jen mentioned on our podcast Worldly the other day. They had a great episode on North Korea that I really do recommend people listen to. But an important point they made is that if you compare this to like the Soviet Union, we had real communication capabilities with the Soviet Union. We had a red phone that if things began getting really out of hand, we could call somebody there immediately. We basically do not have communication with North Korea. Um, they do not have a communication infrastructure. They do not have decent diplomats. Like, we don't know how to get to people very effectively. We can try to go through China. But just one reason it worries me is in addition to North Korea being a very unusual regime, we do not have the structures that we have with most regimes we have an adversarial relationship with where we can communicate at multiple levels simultaneously very effectively. We can do that with Russia. We can do that when we get upset with China. We could do that with the Soviet Union back in the day. North Korea, one just thing that is unique about our relationship with them is that we have basically cut off contact and we have Western European intermediaries, Asian intermediaries, but we do not have a lot of efficacy ourselves. And so the, just a, the possibility for things to get out of hand quickly and for Trump to make that worse quickly, that's where I get afraid. Yeah, I, <laughs> no argument here. <laughs> I mean, that is, yes, like it, it's all playing with fire. I can't tell often when I'm trying to analyze what's happening if sometimes I think I'm succumbing to hysteria. Sometimes I think that, you know, there is merit to the kind of anti-anti-Trump critique that the press has sort of lost its minds and the chattering classes have lost their minds about this guy. And and there are times when some small story blows up that later turns out not to be entirely true that, you know, feels like a point on the side of that framework. I don't think that framework is the correct one for interpreting this era, but there are moments where I, I, I question whether there's more truth to it than I'm willing to let on. I also, sometimes, I oscillate between feeling that and feeling that I'm doing the opposite, that I'm sleepwalking through an absolute constant catastrophe and crisis that my instinct for just psychological self-preservation wills me into seeing as everything is going to be okay <laughs> when it's not. And I, I, I spend all my time basically oscillating across that spectrum of belief about what we're experiencing, particularly when we're talking about nuclear diplomacy. Right. There's some, there's some, you know, bell curve of risk here where where we are <laughs> in the range of it or how I feel about where we're in the range sort of changes from day to day based both on his behavior and my own kind of mood, I guess. Let me offer a, a framework I'm toying with on the media side of this. I think the media goes too far on being offended by Donald Trump and does not go far enough on appreciating the tail risk danger of Donald Trump. That is, a, I think that is a great, a great formulation. I, I think I, that's quite true. I think a lot of people, it's fair to look at the media and the media is real willing to 
be angry about stuff he does, to, to take his tweets in the worst way you can, to um, hear, you know, things he's saying that are a joke, but not treat them really as a joke, treat them as more seriously than he meant them, to look at little things that are happening in the administration or an anonymous leak and give it more credence than maybe it deserves. I think there's a real willingness to make Trump look bad or to feel offended by things he does that is, even though I think he, he is quite bad and, you know, people should feel offended. I do think that the outrage meters are always turned up to 11. And so people give credence to things they shouldn't always give credence to or don't look for a generous interpretation when sometimes there is one. But that said, I think the media does not know how to, does not even have mechanisms for dealing with appreciating the danger, staying in a place of alarm. There was a good video that we just released by, by Carlos Maza, one of our strike through videos on the media. And they were talking about what they call the this is fine bias or the normalcy bias in the media, the the tendency to try to talk about things in a normal way, uh, particularly after the first time they happen. And this is, I think, an, an overwhelming bias. And so when you get into like day five of Trump tweeting with North Korea, you turn on Wolf Blitzer and if you keep the sound off, it just everything seems normal. He could be talking about anything. And I don't think right. And I, yeah. I mean, to, to to as someone who you know has a similar job to Wolf Blitzer, and, and in some ways not, not to sort of defend him, it's like I think that's probably true of me too. I and mean, I think I, it's true of me, by the way. I'm not. I didn't I mean, mean I, to I, I, no, no. I just that. think like part of it is that like it's it's <laughs> it's like the Spinal Tap thing, right? It's like it's like well, this goes to eleven. Like the the we are all playing with speakers that only go to ten. So you go to ten. And then everyone's ears adjust and you, you there's no 11. <laughs> so it's like you come out and you say he's tweeting about war with North Korea. He's tweeting about possible nuclear war. Like that's what he's doing right now. This is insane and reckless. And then the next day it's like he's still tweeting about <laughs> war with North Korea from his freaking golf course in Bedminster, New Jersey for the golf club he owns. He's in the golf club he owns. He just got back from 18 holes, which they bizarrely half-assedly tried to hide, but we saw on Instagram from the bro that hit the links with him, and now he's back, and he's probably watching TV, and he's tweeting threats in North Korea. And it's like, I totally agree with you. I think that's a really good framework of, like, too easily offended, not sufficiently attuned to the dangers about the sort of general vibe of the error. And part of it is just, like, it is an amazing attribute of human beings, how they can adjust to anything. Uh, it's something that always strikes me reading any chronicle of different ages in history or particularly war reporting. The things that people are able to accommodate themselves to are remarkable. And in some ways, it's the great superpower of human beings. I mean, this is the, the species that can live everywhere on the freaking planet from like the blazing equator <laughs> to like the the tundra of Siberia, you know, this is these are these are people that like managed to settle the South Pacific with islands thousands of miles from each other and the superpower is you could just like acclimate to anything and that it's just a deep part of our human nature that we're fighting against. It's not even just like an institutional bias in the news. It's just like that's the way humans are. <laughs> like you just you adjust one of the things that I, I do think is a very positive development in all this is the growing feud between Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell. Uh, I think there's been some real signs of life from Republicans in the Senate around checking Trump. I do think passing the Russia sanctions by a veto-proof majority and tying his hands there was a pretty strong signal. I think what they've done on healthcare, where they've just kind of been like, no, we're done. <laughs> 
please stop acting like this uh, and have not seemed in the way the House did to take his continued ranting on this seriously. And then I think Donald Trump has been really helpful in this by going so angrily and aggressively against McConnell, which pisses McConnell off, which pisses Republicans in the Senate off. I think you've begun to see discussions from people like Jeff Flake uh, about the need to, to curb Trump that are positive. And I know, and I feel this too, it's not as far as I'd like it to go. And I, But I do think that it's an interesting question of what is realistic here. I, I know a lot of liberals who will look at this and say, yeah, but they're voting with Trump. And they, they seem to see the measure of... Um, independence is being, you know, not voting like a conservative because Trump in many ways has been pretty amenable to the conservative agenda. It's just his other weird stuff that, that becomes a problem. But it, it feels to me like Republicans in Congress have made appreciable movement in the last month and a half, particularly in the Senate, at beginning to define an alternative identity, both in how they set their own agenda and also in how they respond to him and also in what their relationship with him is like. So how much goodwill he has to draw on and how much it is part of their normal course of affairs to be defending him or playing down what he's doing. Now, it hasn't stopped. It hasn't led to anything extraordinary yet. But in terms of flickers of life, I, I'm curious if you see what I see in that. Yes, I agree. And it's something that I was always skeptical of because I felt like there was this weird, again, there's been this sort of impulse to find saviors from, from people particularly who are who, who are opposed to the president, his agenda, who, who didn't vote for him, who don't like him, that like someone's going to come save us. It's going to be the good upstanding Republicans are going to come save us or, you know, the investigation is going to come save us. And I found it always like a, a, a weird, a sort of suspect impulse. And so because of my... Suspicion of that impulse, I have been very suspicious of a story about Republicans are starting to turn against Trump. And even with that suspicion, I agree that it, there have been real concrete signs in in, in the past bit uh, that that is actually happening. One of the biggest, I think, was just the idea of the pro forma sessions, you know, pro forma staying in session in the Senate so that he can't do recess appointments, which is generally the kind of thing you do for the opposing party's president because you don't want them to do recess appointments. But to do it to your own is, you know, that's a pretty big fuck you. Like, that is a that is a significant thing they did. That's a decision by leadership, Republican leadership. That's not a bipartisan choice, even though Schumer called for it, to say, like, no, we are not going to give you this power. I, I think that's right. And, and so this gets to something tricky, one question I have here is what does an independent from Trump Congress look like? I think a lot of liberals have unrealistic expectations of this, right? Uh, I see a lot of frustration that, you know, oh, this Republican says he's worried about Trump, but he's also voting with him on health care. Well, Trump has come to where Republicans are on health care, not the other way around. And so I, I think that I think you can't expect that what is going to be the hallmark of opposition to Trump is abandonment of conservative policy goals. Like, that's not going to happen. But I do think the pro forma session thing, the fact that a couple of Republicans are now on a bill to protect Mueller from Trump, Tom Tillis from North Carolina has come out with a bipartisan bill on that. That's an important thing. Lindsey Graham, I think, has, has uh, endorsed that, if I remember correctly, the pro forma sessions you're talking about. What this says to me is that there is real recognition of some of the abnormality here. And I don't think they have mechanisms yet on everything, but 
between that and the worsening relationship between Trump and the Congress, I mean, he's doing exactly the thing he should not do when he's beginning to face this kind of pushback from Congress. He's not strengthening their relationship with him. He's weakening it, which bless Trump for having that impulse. I think that's great. That leads to a, a situation, I think, where if he began to go further fast, it feels to me like the opinions are beginning to solidify, at least among Republicans in the Senate, that there could be a response. Um, we don't yet know, and also Trump has not done something yet, uh, at least in the last couple of weeks, that they could really respond to him and they can't make him stop tweeting. But it does not feel to me like there would be a – it feels to me like there might be a little bit more pushback if Trump did try to do something like fire sessions to get at Mueller or yeah. oh, um, yes. did try to like – try to get a declaration of war against North Korea or something like that. Yes. No, I, yes. I mean, I, I agree entirely. I think there's, they, they are, here's my read on this and, and it connects to what part of what you're saying about how, you know, they've been voting with him, which again, I think, you know, I think you and I both agree that the actual, the non-Trump institutional Republican party is deeply abnormal in certain really dangerous and pathological ways. Um, you know, in its behavior, you know, legislatively, uh, that's distinct from Trump, but 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 is part of a similar coincident trend of of sort of erosion of norms and and in sort of institutional bulwarks. That said, um, my feeling always was that you know I always felt like there was this hope from a lot of liberals that the the Russia stuff and the investigations and the corruption or the accusations of corruption would ultimately force Republicans to kind of abandon abandon the kind of agenda they had in common with him and turn against Trump. And I think it's the other way around. And I predicted this, and I think it's what's happened, which is that they're going to be more inclined to turn against him to the extent they don't think that the arrangement of convenience is going to bear fruit, which is why I think that the death of ACA repeal was sort of a waterloo. Um, and, and a crucial moment. And the reason I think it's, and I don't know if it's dead because it's been dead a bunch of times and I don't necessarily credit that it's dead, but I think to the extent that they're not actually getting anything out of the arrangement, they're going to be more inclined to be independent on other things than if they're able to deliver the things that they said they were going to deliver to their base and, and, and to their donors and to their ideological agenda. So I actually think there's a connection between the two. To the extent the agenda stalls, I think it makes them more willing to rein him in on on stuff that has to do with with investigations. Right. And, and I actually think that's a really good point. Um, I haven't quite thought about it like that. And I do think it's notable that the agenda stalled and it caused the two sides to turn against each other. Right. It caused Trump to turn on McConnell. It's also caused Republicans in Congress. I mean, some of Trump turning on McConnell came from McConnell saying, hey, look, Donald Trump has not done this job before and has had unrealistic expectations about what would happen in Congress. So you're beginning to hear McConnell's frustration with Trump. You've heard a lot of Republicans trying to get Trump to stop sabotaging the ACA in the meantime because they think they'll correctly, they think they'll be blamed for it. That seems to me to be a, a big deal here because, as you say, that what kept them all together was the belief that they could get things done. And it's not just that they didn't get Obamacare done, but that the way that that has fallen apart, it does not look good for tax reform. You've not seen a smooth move over to tax reform or to infrastructure or to something else they care about. There's not currently a Supreme Court vacancy for them to get excited about. So increasingly, what is knitting them together? Like what, what is holding them there? Well, I have a, a kind of 
a cursory but grand unified theory of conservatism at this moment, which which I think actually re- that connects Trump, the Congress, and the conservative media. And what I find fascinating in a weird way against all three is that they all seem to not actually want the power they have. If you watch Fox on a big news day, you are just as likely to see a piece about a freshman at Kenyon who burned a flag or a club in Wisconsin University that banned white people or transgender athletes having an unfair advantage as you are to see what's happening in Washington. And this would be even true, like even when the ACA repeal was happening, when it was looking good, it was barely being covered. So the conservative media is living in this place of powerlessness. It's clearly a calculation they're making that what their audience wants is to feel imperiled and threatened and powerless. And so they go to places of non-conservative dominance like universities to cover those stories, to cover the, you know, the Google memo, right? That the idea that like we're this outnumbered minority who's being persecuted. Then you look at the way that Congress has behaved and what became very clear, particularly in the Senate, and it was sort of true in the House, was that what they wanted in the Senate was to pass a bill that would get vetoed. Like, they didn't want to pass a bill that would change the law of the ACA. They wanted to go back to the good old days when they passed laws the president would veto that had no meaning. They wanted to just do the symbolism that they've been doing. And when confronted with the actual reality of governing, it fell apart. And then you look at the president in a weird way. I think he just wants to watch cable news talk about himself and tweeted it. I don't think he wants the power of running the country. I think he's perfectly satisfied to, like, coordinate this kind of, you know, sort of spectacle. And and so it's a it's a very strange thing that I've sort of picked up in the in the entirety of this movement that ostensibly controls every part of government, controls almost a supermajority of state houses in the country. I mean, this is this is a party, the Republican Party in a movement, conservative movement, that in certain empirical measures is more powerful than it's ever been, and whose sort of social, psychological, emotional life as expressed through its media organs and in the behaviors and statements of its leaders is a kind of pining for the days of powerlessness. I, I want to ask in the, the time we have left then about the other side of this. So Democrats, it's a little bit hard to say exactly how much you give them for for Ob- for stopping Obamacare appeal. I mean, they held their group together, which I think was was to be expected and were reasonably effective in the opposition. And I think that Schumer did a good job creating space for McCain to, to come over to their side on it. But they've also now released a better way agenda, which I, I do think is an interesting agenda and in sort of moving further on anti-monopoly concentration measures and before has a pretty robust prescription drugs dimension is moving to the left. Um, there's been a lot more coherence between Bernie Sanders and the rest of the Senate Democratic Party. I mean, there's internal frictions there, but in terms of how they all work together on the Affordable Care Act, they really did do a very good job of sticking together and not getting split on things like single payer. I am curious if you have a sense of where the Democratic Party is moving and how it is evolving now that it's had a little bit of time to get its bearings, now that it's had a couple successes in opposition, and now that it's beginning to to look towards 2018 and to try to think about what it becomes. Yeah, I think the shorthand that it's moving to the left is correct. I think that's true on issues of political economy. I think there continues to be a very both important and often maddening conversation about so-called cultural issues or so-called identity politics or social issues or whatever the the huge ambit of those 
issues are called, which again, I think are almost all connected in deep ways to people's economic security and so are not separable from economics and political economy, but get sort of placed in a different bucket. So I think it's, I think there's a lot of ferment. Look, here to me is the issue. In many ways, Democrats came off an administration that was one of the most successful presidential administrations legislatively. And and in certain ways, in terms of economic management, when you look at what started under Obama and where he ended up, uh, of any Democratic president since LBJ in domestic sense and and maybe FDR, right? Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, the fundamental problem of the economy was not changed. And that shows up in the chart that David Leonard just published, uh, you know, using the Zuckman and Piketty data about inequality. Like, even under this Democratic, combined Democratic governance, they did a lot of things that improved from the status quo in real concrete and significant ways. The fundamental issue with the economy was that the economy does not produce gains for the average worker. <laughs> that didn't improve. And there's this great J.W. Mason paper for the Roosevelt Institute that's, that basically makes the argument that we're essentially still in the recession in certain key ways, that we're undershooting in a sort of permanent sense that the trajectory of American growth that was bent downwards by the impact of the financial crisis and the ensuing recession. And so there's this just deep central problem that is a almost existential tear at the social contract of the country. And I think it's felt particularly hard by a generation that came of age into the recession and its aftermath, which is just like, the American economy just doesn't work for average people. That's the tweet length version. The American economy does not work for average people. <laughs> and the I think the future of the party, and I think something they're grasping is basically that you have to come up with a solution to that tweet length problem. And there's a really interesting conversation about what the solutions are. And you talk about the, the some of the, the the kind of concentration and, and, and antitrust work that that, that is being done uh, intellectually. Some of the regulatory ideas, some of the ideas around universal basic income, job guarantee, raising wages. There's there is a pretty, you know, interesting roiling debate about what what is the package of solutions or the structure of an economy that would reverse that central crucial trend that even combined democratic governance for all the good it did, which I think it did a lot of good things, really just didn't crack that nut. It, it just remains the case that the people at the very top are essentially managing to extract every surplus penny that the economy produces. It's bananas. So that to me is the big question. And I think you're right that the Democrats are moving left in some ways, but it is not an easy question to answer, and it's also a it's a big enough it's a big enough problem that a bunch of sort of marginal ideas. We've already gone through a period where a bunch of ideas were applied to solve it that didn't actually solve it. Well, I think one of the the interesting sub themes of of that question is that the Obama era and the combination of its very 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 real successes with its inability to solve some of the deeper problems of, of not just the economy, but I think more broadly of the society. I, I think that one of the great cleavages on the Democratic side right now is not so much policy as it is politics. And this is something that I think is not getting discussed. Well, so, and I'm almost like tentative about going into this because I, I want to write something more careful on it. But one of my senses of, of Democrats, um, and I think this is true in this sort of quote-unquote neoliberal debate, is that there's a political divide now and a policy divide. 
the policy divide is often less deep than people think it is, and the political divide is often quite a bit deeper. And, and so, you know, take something like single-payer health care. I am often framed as a neoliberal in this debate, but if you could get single-payer health care passed, I'd be totally fine with it. <laughs> uh, I'd be, I think that would be great compared to what we have now. And I think that was true for a lot of people in the Obama administration. I think it's true for, for a lot of people on left. And conversely, you saw with Bernie Sanders, who's a single-payer supporter, that he would vote for the Affordable Care Act. And he would vote for the stimulus bill, even if it wasn't big enough. I think there's a lot of, you know, what do you want? Um, but what you want is in many ways driven by, by what you can get. And so then I think there's this other thing that Obama's come to stand in for. And I do think a lot of the neoliberalism debate revolves around in ways that aren't always clear. But in what kinds of politics do you take for granted? What kinds of institutional constraints do you take for granted? And, and what do you think you need to do? I mean, part of what Sanders is proposing as an evolution or in some ways a, a rebuttal to Obama-era politics is that you can't fix the system by working within the system and with the system's existing stakeholders, right? Obama ran against special interests and he ran against a system that didn't work for you. But when it came down to it, his vision of how to fix that was inclusive, was working with people, was talking to Wall Street bankers, was talking to people, was talking to Republicans, was compromising with conservative Democrats. And, you know, I think his version of that is you actually have to do that. And even if Bernie Sanders were in office, he would have to do that too. I tend to think there's a lot of truth to that. But Sanders definitely believes, and I think a lot of Democrats believe, that you sort of need to upend the politics more profoundly if you're going to deal with these more profound issues. And maybe it doesn't work, but you do need to throw that more Hail Mary pass. You need to go outside the system. You need to overwhelm it. You need to decide who your enemies are. You need to really try to destroy them. And that has created a, I don't think, it, I don't think people in, in politics do a great job debating political like theories, theories of how to get things done. I think they, they talk about them, but they don't tend to, to argue them directly the way they argue policies directly. But that feels to me like a very, very unresolved tension on the left right now that like, do you accept that this is a system and you have to work within it? Or is the system so broken, you somehow have to figure out a way around it? Yeah, I think that's right. I also think it's related to that as a set of, set of questions about who you trust and who's acting in good faith. And, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of suspicion about bad faith in different parts of this, you know, debate. There's, I think, a lot of folks who are, you know, critical of, you know, neoliberal technocracy, for, for, for sort of lack of a better term, you know, think that it's fundamentally a kind of like bad faith, self-justifying enterprise of, overly credentialed in-club folks who fundamentally don't actually care about justice and equality and are all kind of just fluffing each other's resumes. And I think that likewise, the neoliberal technocrats think that the, you know, the, the sort of quote unquote Bernie bros or the red rose Twitter or whatever, the sort of stereotype of the, 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 the sort of left socialist end of the, the, the coalition are kind of like, mean-spirited trolls or like have some sort of personal beef or often what ends up happening is some sort of like, I think, really wrong-headed projection onto them of, you know, having issues with women or people of color, et cetera, despite the fact that a lot of the folks in that wing of the coalition are women and people of color, et cetera. So I think there's just a lot of mutual mistrust around good faith and bad faith that is part of the the politics of this. I also just think that there's like, for all the, you, there was this big DSA Democratic Socialists of America conference in Chicago, and 
for all the talk about this sort of resurgence in democratic socialism, partly being partly being driven by Bernie Sanders and his association that way, I think that there's a little bit of a lack of under theorization for like a broad framework for what a 21st century democratic socialism in America would look like, like so much of what, and that's partly because the channels of power and policy development tend to be the ones associated with the sort of neoliberal technocracy or the, or the incrementalists or the folks that come up through the sort of existing institutions that are basically center left institutions that look for ways to range inside the possible. But I, I do think that, that, that on a sort of substantive grounds, I do think that the idea that Barack Obama, who's one of the most skilled and gifted politicians, and I think one of the most sort of brilliant, competent individuals sort of ever in American public life, with huge, overwhelming Democratic majorities in a time of crisis, sort of pedal to the metal, were able to pass and do all this stuff and, and, and really realize a lot of things were unable to solve this central problem means that you you do have to start looking for solutions <laughs> in new places. I, I don't think that's a crazy idea because I think no, that's at least the lesson, one of the lessons I've drawn. Well, I think one of the, I think there are actually two pretty interesting questions there. Well, maybe more than that even. But but one is that I think that the way that that kind of bad faith argument goes on both sides, I think the way you you framed it is correct. But I think the other version is from the Bernie left to the Obama left, let's say, is the view that there's like a bad faith, technocratic, and and somewhat corrupted idea, right? That that these folks have spent so much time around Wall Streeters and you know Ivy Leagues and and, and on and on that just what they believe has gone a little sour, uh, and maybe it's even believed in good faith, but but it, but it's really wrong. And what you get going backwards from the Obama left and really got this from the Clinton left to to, to the Bernie left was that there is just like a you would often hear the word like an unseriousness. That, yes, you know, just right, like with yeah. making the compromises of governance, like it's all great to give big speeches and like have big rallies, but like when it comes down to it and you've got to win over the um, 50, the 51st or the 60th vote in the Senate, like, okay, what do you do? Right. And if you're not willing to actually get something done, then you're actually not trying to help people. You're trying to show what a great person you are. You're trying to show your own purity that I think there's a suspicion sometimes that you know, we were talking about the Republicans who are more comfortable in the minority. Um, that that sort of Clinton, Obama, more technocratic left has that suspicion that the Bernie left is comfortable in the minority, but actually does not have a plan for the majority. Right. And then then there's this question. But, but this is where I do think there's something interesting happening just in all politics right now. Obviously, Donald Trump is not being successful, and there are a lot of lessons in that. But what he has done is it's pretty clear there are many more ways of doing politics than people thought were possible a couple of years ago. Absolutely. And I think even Absolutely. if you're not even taking Trump, but you're just looking at the way Republicans almost rammed through a pretty insanely unpopular health care bill on top of an insane process, I mean, Democrats, I don't think really would have even considered what Republicans did as a possibility in 2008. And in, in many ways, it, maybe it wasn't. Um, where people were on things was just they were at a different point. Eight years has radicalized people on both sides. Uh, you know, Democrats changed the filibuster rules. I mean, all kinds of things have happened. But between what's happened with Trump, what's happened in congressional process, all of a sudden you look at it and you say, well, yeah, I mean, it may be that people whose careers were forged in the 90s and even in the Obama era they do have a narrow view of what's possible. And while some of these other plans might lead to tremendous failure, and I think Trump's is currently on the road to quite a bit of failure, the boundaries of the discussion should not be taken as as narrow as I think they have been. 
yeah, I, and I think that I think that's true, and I think that like the animating idea behind you know the Bernie would have won meme, which which is a sort of trolling meme in some ways, but also I think a sincere statement of of counterfactual belief, whether true or not. I think the part of the idea, the, part of the, the notion there is like. Before Trump's election, the idea that like America would elect a 72-year-old Jewish Democratic self-advised socialist was like obviously preposterous, but then it elected Donald Trump and like who the heck knows? And I the, the the like after Trump, who the heck knows what's possible, I think is independent of of the actual, you know, Bernie would have won question, which is obviously unresolvable. There is a, I think, a degree to which like the boundaries are open. And and in some ways, maybe the sort of hopeful flip side, if we want to sort of end on a hopeful note the kind of plummeting terror one feels as we watch one institutional constraint fall down after another, you know, the flip side of hope is that those constraints are also limiting to the extent these sort of frontiers have opened and the frontiers with have opened in one direction towards like, maybe we will have a nuclear war, <laughs> but, but, you know, to the extent there's a silver lining in the frontiers opening, it's like maybe a bunch of things are possible in politics that we had just been thinking weren't possible. Chris Hayes, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Chris for being here. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, to my engineer, Riyadh Shawi. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network podcast, and we'll be back next week. 